the ex-worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A twice-monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action. For everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. Hello, and welcome back to The Ex-Worker. In this episode, we're going to share an audio documentary about the Hambacher forest occupation in Germany. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded live in the occupied forest and the nearby squatted meadow back in the spring of 2014. We'll return to our usual format with news, event announcements, reviews, listener feedback, and so forth in episode 38 in a couple of weeks. For now... We want to take this full episode to focus on an inspiring example of anti-capitalist and ecological resistance taking place in the Rhineland coal country of Western Germany. So come along with us across the Atlantic, and let's see what we can learn from these woodland squatters who have dared to take on one of the largest polluters in Europe and the full power of the German state. The Hambacher Forest has been called the last primeval forest in Europe. It has existed continuously for some 12,000 years, the largest forest in the region between the city of Cologne and the Netherlands, although now only a fraction of its original 5,500 hectares remain. Since 1978, energy companies have been devouring it tree by tree in order to mine brown coal to fuel Germany's industrial expansion. The remaining chunk of forest populated by massive hornbeam and oak trees, along with several rare or endangered species of animals, has been targeted by the European energy giant RWE. The company has begun digging an incomprehensibly huge open-cast mine, displacing entire villages and clear-cutting the last remnants of this once great forest. But in 2012, a coalition of angry locals, environmental activists, Anarchists and squatters began an occupation intended to stop the destruction and protect as much of the remaining forest as possible. Despite extensive surveillance and repression, including multiple waves of evictions, the occupation continues and has catalyzed widespread support around the region and beyond. In these interviews, two occupiers from the camp describe the political context and recent history of the struggle, as well as their personal experiences of the relationships they've built with the land and those struggling to defend it. We go beyond the slogans into the intimate life of the forest and its inhabitants, human and otherwise, and into the day-to-day realities of life under surveillance in a squatted camp. And perhaps most inspiringly, we hear how the necessity to continue resisting goes beyond winning or losing this particular battle. The logic of resistance as a way of life. As you'll hear in the interviews, the effort to defend the Hambacher Forest exists at the intersection of many major themes of anti-capitalist, anti-state, and eco-defense struggles. Like the anti-airport occupation at the Zad in France, and the Notav campaign of resistance to a high-speed train line in Italy, this campaign goes far beyond a single issue or the attempt to defend a specific area from destruction. Instead, 
It marks the convergence of a cross-section of distinct movements, seeking pressure points to interrupt global flows of oppressive power. And in these spaces of cross-pollination, we see the emergence of new strategies, tactics, and visions of resistance and liberation. Whether or not you've ever been to Germany, or have any particular love for the woods, the Hambacher Forest Occupation offers powerful lessons for anyone interested in the struggle for a free world beyond capitalism and authority. This is Clara from The Ex-Worker, and I'm here in the Hambacher Forest in Germany, walking around with two folks from the occupation here. It's springtime, and it's incredibly beautiful. Everything is green, and we can hear birds chirping and animals. We can also hear the sound of the highway in the background, and we're going to talk a little bit today about why folks are occupying this forest and the history of resistance in this area and uh, what folks can do to show solidarity. So... This was always the way um, I was walking when I went to bed. It's a small path and it's going directly to the old occupation, what is evicted now. And that was just evicted uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, two, two weeks, I think, um, on the 27th of March. And um, they, they also cut the trees instead of just cutting out the tree houses. <laughs> And um, that was the most horrible thing for me, to hear the trees falling on the ground. Because many of them were really, really old, like 250 or 300 years old. Um, like, it was growing for more or less 250 years, and then they cut it off in just 10 minutes, more or less. You cannot really believe that because you you was always touching it with so much love and respect and um, like with so soft with so soft fingers, you know, because you really love it and you wanna don't want to destroy what you love, and um, then it's way much harder when they just destroy it with such uh, yeah with such a unrespectful way hmm. we're coming to some kind of clearing I see a what is that little tower it's a um, hunter's lodge ah. um, but they don't hunt anymore in this part around the meadow because of us yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the the meadow and the forest occupation are also um, like hunting sabotage, um, indirect and also directly, <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, that's also one point why I like this way of action to occupy 
um, natural areas, <laughs> so to say. Um, yeah, because it's not just one action. Can you tell us about why people are occupying this forest? One of the uh, main reasons for occupying this forest is basically to make it um, to make it as hard as possible for um, the police and for the uh, company RWE to cut down the forest because uh, what they want to do is to um, extend the hole which is right yeah actually <clears throat> at this very moment in the process of swallowing the whole forest and also some villages around and the purpose of this hole is basically only to get brown coal to produce energy which are among the most um, dirty means there are to produce energy because it produces a lot of co2 and um, yeah carbon dioxide i mean and it um, also produces a lot of um, toxic dust which is flying around here making people sick and destroying the nature. Um, another big side effect um, of the brown coal mining here is that a lot of uh, groundwater or actually all the groundwater needs to be pumped away because otherwise it would fill the mine since they are digging below 400 or even 500 meters deep and so they pump up all the water which is drinking water which is not usable anymore because of this and also um, is drying out uh, the landscape Here you can see the paths of the animals we are standing in the front of a field. Um, I don't know. You you know how the plant is named? In German, it's Fahn. Yeah. Ferns. Ferns. Yeah. Yeah. And um, right now, it is just brown, and um, you cannot see the um, the young fern, f ferns. Ferns. Um, but you can see a lot of um, paths of the animals who are walking through the farms. What kind of animals live here? Mm, a lot, like, um, oh yeah, yeah, I think I don't know all the English. Wild pigs? Wild pigs yeah. are amongst them. Wild pigs and um, deer. Deer? Deer is real? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, ducks are all. Oh, ducks. What are those animals with the black and white stripes, but not zebras? And the, <laughs> and the long nose, and um, yeah. hunters really like to hunt them. Um, not zebras. <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, now you have a zebra in his brain. <laughs> there are zebras in the Hambacher Forest. Defend the endangered zebras of Germany. <laughs> um... 
so these these like zebras only that they are <laughs> not like zebras they don't like look like horses holes and they live in holes and yes yeah they they are living in yeah right they are living in holes and um they are not look like horses <laughs> <laughs> to make this clear <laughs> if you see one please point it out I'm fascinated I don't think we have these zebras that live in areas in the United States but I could be wrong <laughs> yeah RWE and what is their role in all of this process? RWE is in fact one of the five biggest energy producing companies in Europe and they even claim themselves that they are the biggest cause of, of CO2 pollution even though they would name it a bit different but they um, Yeah, they claimed that they e emit the most carbon dioxide in Europe and they're involved in, in different ways of producing energy but also distributing energy. Their biggest focus is on coal mining and coal power plants and also nuclear power plants. They are really a <coughs> really big force in the area because they have been here for such a long time and uh, they're such a big player and also they did remove a lot of people from their homes which is I think not the easiest thing a company can do <laughs> but uh, what they do is they, they are splitting the communities by different means such as uh, finding out who are the leaders by taking secret photographs on parties or yeah things like this and then getting into individual negotiations with the people about their houses and their their property and so that each one of us has the feeling that he's somehow a winner in this whole negotiation but can't tell the neighbor because he might have a bit more and doesn't want to cause any jealousy mm. stuff like that so yeah just as uh, one example and also RWE is um, the, the biggest or one of the biggest um, employers um, in the area mm. which um, in total causes a big feeling of disillusion among the people here and hopelessness because they feel that they are so dependent on them and also are fighting against such a big enemy yeah um, but still there are people who are very much outrageous and also people who somehow found hope in seeing that their people from 
other um, villages or also from cities coming here and occupying and trying different tactics and that also uh, raised a lot of interest among people but also a lot of controversy uh, controversy mm-hmm. um, there are definitely as well people who are um, hostile towards us as occupiers or squatters how did the occupation here begin Um, the occupation, the first occupation started in 2012, on the 12th, uh, no, on the 14th of April. And it started together with a forest fest, where a lot of people came, I think like 300 people from all the villages around and also some from other cities and villages. And, yeah, (laughs) some people, like six or seven people, just got up the trees and um, were putting some platforms inside, some hanging platforms. And from that date on, the forest was occupied. (laughs) Many people show a lot of solidarity. And RWE, the company, also came in the first time and said, yeah okay we tolerate you here and we are very open for communication and um, for criticizing us and so on and so on and yeah they they try to keep their image in um, being tolerant we were there for seven months and especially in the first time we nearly could do everything what we want and the first time I wasn't there but I heard about a person who was just climbing on a digger and nobody tried to to get him down again or something like this they just observed him um, to yeah that he don't do anything stuff like this and then there also happened some direct actions and um, Especially in October, when the cutting season starts, there happened a lot of direct actions to to stop the cutting and showing direct resistance. Mm. And then in November 2012, on the 13th, they came to evict us, and uh, it were 500 cops for 23 people, I think. <laughs> And many people locked themselves on, and um, yeah, then there was a big surprise for the police. <laughs> there was a tunnel, and they, in the first moments, or in the first at the first day and the first hours, they didn't really believe in it. They thought that we make just funny about them, and. In the newspapers it was also written down that maybe we installed um, a very intelligent um, language computer who can communicate with them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny. And then um, they had to realize that there's a person inside, really. Um, yeah, it was a situation which they didn't knew how to handle it because there wasn't 
something like this before in Germany. They they know the the action um, action form of locking on or of lock-ons, yeah. but they um, they never had something like a person who who was in a tunnel under yeah they absolutely didn't know how to handle it and is that a tactic that was developed in the UK from the anti road study yeah yeah definitely um, it was like um, yeah there there were a, lo a lot of ideas and um, introductions uh, from the UK and so the the tunnel was dig, dig proper, really proper, and um, also the the special unions from the police said that um, the tunnel is digged very um, safe and very professional. Yeah, and at least they it took them four days to get the person out, and with this uh, it was the longest eviction in Germany. Till now. <laughs> yeah, now we are coming to the first tree. Here I was building my treehouse. And it was an old oak. It was like, I I think, more than three, uh, 250 years old. How long did you live there? I didn't really have the time to live on the platform because there was just a platform not a house on it but I spent there two nights at least and um, I'm really thankful for these two nights because it was really um, very important um, remembering yeah <laughs> or this very important remembering um, yeah, and directly next to the oak there were standing two um, cherry trees, smaller cherry trees, and um, they just had the flowers when they evict. <laughs> so they also cut them, and um, when the flowers were um, were still growing, or yeah, like open, you had seen the the flowers out of the this part I cannot really describe it but yeah you will know what I mean yeah uh, it's now like a like a hole in the in the forest just So now there have been three different occupations of the forest that have been evicted, but there's also a protest settlement in a field just on the border of the forest that you are allowed to stay in because you have the permission of the person who owns the land? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite a big luck. Um, when 
when the um, person from the tunnel came out or when they get the person from the tunnel two days later we managed to occupy a meadow close or directly next to the forest and the person who is owning the the meadow is really solidarity with us and he really spent a lot of energy to let us stay there because police tried often so often to evict us from there with like simply simple building laws and stuff like this but because he was always going against that with a lot of letters and writing formulas and what I I don't know <laughs> whatever um, he managed to bring it to the next higher court and um, so now the higher court have to decide about um, yeah how to how to deal with it so for the first time the meadow is quite safe so to say it doesn't mean that they cannot come there but um, they cannot evict us for the first time where the platform was no it was more on top a bit more on top like um, you know here look at this one yeah. do you remember this one oh right yeah yeah so it was over there I can't believe it it's like a like a dead person also hmm? when you it's in a total different state somehow you realize it's the same thing or it's somehow similar but at the same time it has no similarities it looks totally different especially because of the broken branches so as we were standing out in the meadow earlier today we saw one of those trucks driving by full of employees of the company that drive around and take pictures of everybody in the occupation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of repression and surveillance that are happening both from the police and from the company employees and private security? Yeah, RWE ordered um, a private security f company, or now there are two, <laughs> not just one anymore. When the occupation started, first time they had the mission that um, that they don't feel provocated by us at all, and um, yeah, if we don't really do something really hard, so to say, that they don't should not do anything about us. But then it started slow that. Mm, that they also started to provocate us. It was a little bit. It reminds me um, on the situation on a on a school schoolyard. <laughs> like I'm stealing your your backpack and throwing it to another person, and I always try to get it, <laughs> but I'm too small. Uh -huh. It was a bit a little bit like this. Just um, not really important stuff, but 
like um, they sent people to the in the wrong direction when they were asking them where they have to go to the occupation for example and um, I remember one situation um, when some people were getting some sand to um, to isolate the hut with the clay and um, it was in the in the dead zone so we called it the zone between the forest and the hole and um, yeah we sometimes went there to get the sand so there were three persons who went there with the wheelbarrow and um, on the way back when they had the full wheelbarrows um, two security cars came and um, stand in their way and wait for them and then they said there were three securities and then they said it's our wheelbarrow and we're gonna take it because it's ours and you stole it from us <laughs> and um, so it was a little bit like um, yeah like a little bit like dancing everybody um, had one person in front of him or her and the securities throw the sand out of the um, wheelbarrows and um, I took the one wheelbarrow and then we wa just wanted to pass but they they didn't still didn't let us go and s started to um, hit one person who was um, male associated and the other both were female associated so one of the others took a pepper spray and sprayed it into the face of the one of the security guys so the people easily got away um, yeah and I think this was the point where the securities also started to be more more hostile yeah and more aggressive platform or from the tree you had a really beautiful view on, on all around mm. and um, especially the, um, this part I liked um, very much where the tans, tans are um, and when the sun went down you have a wonderful view on the sun um, mm. Sunrise? No, sun sunset. Sunset. <laughs> I always get it wrong. <laughs> Mining for brown coal is an incredibly destructive process. Can you describe a little bit about the hole and the machines that are there and what it's doing to the forest? Um, yeah, the hole is um, like eight to ten kilometers um, and f 500 meters um, yeah no 450 meters deep and um, yeah when you are at the right point to have a view on it um, you can also see five power plants around there and 
for me actually that was um, one of the reasons or one of the points where I decided okay this is a struggle which I want to fight yeah, yeah. Um, people can feel the results in uh, also in the Netherlands and Belgium and in um, cities which are quite a bit away from from the whole I, I wish there was some way to convey just how fucking horrifying it is because I think it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life and it's really mm -hmm. hard to describe to people who haven't seen it that it's like the size of a mm -hmm. city you know you could fit a town yeah you know just like and that and then it's just like a complete and total wasteland with nothing left alive yeah, yeah in fact I think it's uh, in fact I think it's even something which um is even hard to realize when you are um, actually standing right in front of it because it just looks so different. It's like standing in front of a screen and you're not really integrating it in your environment because especially if you come out of this forest and uh, you might still realize, um, okay, now... This is the point where the trees are being cut down and you see the clear cut which already looks quite destructive and quite uh, frustrating or um, yeah, sad depending on what your general mood is in that moment. Uh, mostly it's also anger. Um, but beyond this um, you just have the edge and then nothing like... Mordor or whatever I always like to compare it with that because it it's really this thing you you see a line and after this there's just nothing only only soil and it looks like a huge wound in the ground but you can't even see the other end because it's so huge and even the the diggers uh, which are yeah a few hundred meters long and I think almost 100 meter high um, they appear just as tiny toys in this hole yeah I think that is also one um, detail um, that you cannot really realize the size because um, the diggers and the cars or especially the digger and the but there is a machine um, like a snake it looks like a snake a bit um, because it's more than 100 meters long and it's going through the whole um, open cast mine and um, they are transporting the coal on it so it's always working or running to bring the coal to the bunker and you you cannot really um, think or know what size it has it, when you're standing on the on the edge of the hole you think it's like like that high like um, to your breast or more or less maybe smaller maybe a bit higher but in reality it's uh, you can walk through it when you're standing yeah upright and also the diggers look quite quite small the only point where you can imagine how big it is in reality is when you see the cars or the normal diggers when they are um, driving next to them then you realize what it's yeah. more huge than you thought about mm -hmm. 
Um, also, there was a very nice action happening when uh, something like a political orchestra came and placed themselves directly at the edge, so um, to blockade uh, the digger exactly to in in front of the digger. And when the digger came, it had to stop there. Um, but there are also pictures of that which make you realize how big this. Um, digging uh, wheel is it's yeah it's like a wheel which which has a lot of uh, teeth and is constantly one after another digging um, each one of them um, a ton of uh, soil and a, yeah a car could fit in it and uh, seeing this then um, directly behind the orchestra um, yeah was a very nice picture. I've only seen it on pictures, but... <laughs> Have you been there? Have you? Can you explain a bit more about the situation? <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, it was like we just went there and two people costumed themselves in... Um, Anzüge? Uh, suits. Yeah, suits. And um, one had a like a cowboy hat... Uh, hat. <laughs> And the other had a like a turban. They were looking quite official. And the securities were first like, who's there coming? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, maybe they are very important. <laughs> they were a little bit confused. <laughs> and so we just went there and um, built everything up. And, and this time the, uh, some police, some village police officer already came. And um, yeah, they didn't really knew how to deal with it because the people just started to play and, um, and then they said to us yeah we have to go somewhere <laughs> and um, we tried to um, stay there as long as possible and at least the digger was standing for two hours more or less and then we just went off when more security and police came. Shall we walk? Yeah, I would like to see the rest of the destruction the first time for me now to be here since the last eviction. Do you want to go the, the old way or the new way? <laughs> because oh. here was just forest and we always used that way. To Next. be honest, it is really hard to recognize um, to, or to have the orientation again because the destruction of the diggers and the bulldozers really made a lot of difference in the whole picture here. They destroyed so much of the small trees and plants. There's a person. Oh, but it's somewhere else. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's messed. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> We saw someone walking and uh, weren't sure if maybe it was a security patrol, but they were wearing <laughs> they were wearing a camouflage suit and uh, a face mask, so it's a friend. 
You also and thought that we are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe security. There is a tree where I was living for some months in a treehouse. What about the glass windows which they threw down? They are they still there. It? No, of course not. How can they? Because they left a lot of stuff, like small things, small details. And... Uh, what do? Can you talk a little bit about how the occupation of this forest connects to other anti-capitalist and environmental movements in Germany and in elsewhere in Europe? Mm. I think for me the occupation or the occupations on the one hand are solidarity actions for the people who are affected directly and who have to move and that they know there are some people who are um, behind you and who like to support you when you say no completely, you know, and who want to re resist because there are many who don't... Um, oh, I haven't seen that yet. Um, because there are many people who... Oh, yeah, <laughs> I cannot yeah. concentrate right now. Okay. This is the stump of one of the trees that had a tree house that was just cut down. And what does that say? <coughs> um, the, somebody uh, put a little piece of wood which uh, appears to be a part of this tree which was cut down and placed it on the stump. And it has something written on it, which is, My name was Testimo. At the 21st of March 2014, I got killed by RWE. And next to it, there's a candle and a small piece of glass or a small piece of mirror. And I can still see some ropes up in the trees that are severed but still attached high up yeah it was um, the walkways to the other treehouse to the treehouse what didn't um, was finished uh, what was not finished um, yeah and this tree on the second one uh -huh. um I was talking with the one police climber for a while and he was saying stuff like, yeah, I, I really respect what you are doing and I really, I also don't like what they are doing and uh, asked also some questions but less like taking information, it's more like um, having this small talk yeah for me he seems like being like okay but uh, just um loyal to his to his job of course like uh -huh. they all are uh -huh. <laughs> and um 
the same argument like all of them are using I have to do it, it's my job and I cannot do anything against it and I have to get some money for my family and stuff like this and stuff like this always the same <laughs> and I think at the same time police often when they get into conversations like that and try to be really understanding I think often they are just um, um, realizing that their job might get a little bit easier if they have a good communication with their uh, victims let's say and I also have had some conversations with some um, police guys where they couldn't argue anymore when I said them stuff to him because or to them because at some points I was really really angry not because of the tree houses of course because it's a part of that they evict the tree houses it's a part of the action but um, that they cut at the trees that was something what makes me really really angry and really um, yeah like and close to the point that I cannot control myself anymore and um, so I put a lot of anger to them and um, said everything to them yeah You're listening to an audio documentary about the struggle to defend the Hambacher Forest in Western Germany, recorded live in the spring of 2014 at the occupation. For a full transcript of the interviews, along with links and references to learn more about the struggle, visit our website at crimethink.com podcast. You can get the latest updates on the occupation from their website, Hambach Forest, that's H-A-M-B-A-C-H, F-O-R-E-S-T dot blogsport that's B-L-O-G-S-P-O-R-T dot D-E Now, back to the interviews. you again about the connection of this occupation to other anti-capitalist and environmental struggles in Europe? Mm -hmm. oh. I think also one important point in this um, kind of action is that um, there is a possibility to meet each other and um, to connect each other and talk about what's going on in the world and also to learn a lot of stuff in different ways like theory and practice what is um, for me a really important point in political activism yeah for me it was also like a very important point to get here and to spend um, this one and a half years here because I I really learned a lot about what I want and what I don't want and who I am. And I think this is also a very important point in political activism, 
that activists learn about themselves, what is important for them. Because then you can get stronger and um, build a tactic or an idea how to you how you can work or fight against capitalism and all the shit around us, and how you can build a new like a new um, society or a new construct of living together. So I think this is also one very important point. Uh, since a few years, there's a, a meeting called, if I would translate it, uh, something like um, Assembly. Uh, whoa. What the fuck? This looks terrible. Yeah, and I still didn't really figure it out. If this was the tree where the tree has worked on, or this one? This was or Little this Bilston. One. Little Bilston with yeah. this? Yeah. Wow. Um, but anyway, there's um, there are serious attempts, um, or people are trying to connect the... Um, different struggles against useless um, huge projects um, such as uh, the No Tough movement against the um, train railway from France to um, Turin in uh, Torino in Italy um, or Stuttgart 21 the new the new train station in uh, Stuttgart in South Germany um, or Lazard the struggle against the big airport and also others like gold mining in Rocha Montana or Greece and um, yeah so people uh, a lot of people know each other and have visited uh, the, the different places and learned from their tactics but also learned about differences because um, there are a lot of differences like for example at Notaf there is a big history of uh, partisan anti-fascist uh, struggle um, in or before World War II I think and in World War II yeah the situation is um, is very different at each places but um, people also realize that they have a lot in common and have a lot to learn and uh, I actually hope very much that also these uh, big meetings which take place on a, a regular basis now um, will bring people more um, together and also people who are not involved in like anarchist militant struggles or such um, so that they um, get some sort of inspiration if they see how uh, the people in um, um, at Notaf, for example, um, react to to the threat of this big project, or how people um, in Britannia at Lazard were somehow. Uh, getting closer and closer together 
with the squatters and somehow adapting some of their tactics and like using their tractors for example to build huge barricades and such like things. These two are, were the trees um, uh, where the first tree houses were on. So here the occupation started. And, and the first time I was living on this tree. And this was cut down in in the fall of 2012? No, this one, um, these trees are from the um, third occupation and eviction. Yeah, okay. And um, here was the beginning of the third occupation. Mm -hmm. And uh, these trees were actually closely connected. You could only climb on the one tree and then you had to get to the other tree and on both trees there were two uh, platforms mm -hmm. so in total is, it was a connection of uh, four tree houses There are severed limbs and branches lying all over the ground from the remains of the tree that hosted this platform, but you can still see the knots of the rope that held up the platforms, which are still solid, still tightly tied around the different forks of the branch, holding together the carved limbs of other fallen trees that helped to support the structure. And it seems like these bonds, these connections of resistance are holding strong even when repression is weighing down on people, driving people crazy, even when more and more of the forest is being destroyed every day. That these bonds of action, of solidarity, these relationships are sustaining and sustaining through struggles connecting across the continent to different kinds of projects, different kinds of infrastructures and destruction that is being resisted. And I don't know if hope is the right word. I don't know if we can talk about the occupiers here being hopeful, but we can talk about these bonds, these strong connections of resistance being forged that I think are laying the foundation for the resistance of the future and alternatives to the misery around us. There's one close. Yeah, yeah. My actually my tree house was named Ant Palace. <laughs> oh. Oh. 
There's a bigger one. So what is what are these mountains called? I'm not really sure, or we both are not really sure about the English word for that. Or I thought that there's maybe like um, ant palace, but maybe it's just a um, um, a word what I just found uh, in, in any case, it's a massive ant hill. Uh, <laughs> Come on. Right. <laughs> you won the quiz. Wow, look at here. They have some. They kidnapped um, a beetle. <laughs> I think it's already dead. I never had trouble with them, actually. Because the, on the tree where I was building my treehouse, there were a lot of them. But, uh, or not up there, but um, down there, there were a lot of them. But I never had, like, that they were biting me or stuff like this. It's, it's really difficult to hear them now because the birds are just shouting too loud. <laughs> but, but if you get close enough, you can actually hear the sound yeah. of the ants moving around. And if you're quiet enough, try it. What if I um, what if I put this up? Does it make a difference? I put it as loud as it can go. Okay. Oh. Yeah, try that. I think now you have some researchers. <laughs> crawling on me? No. <laughs> There's a road where they normally and also during the eviction came from. It's going to the street. Mm. I I saw this road before it um, they started to use it. And um, yeah, of course, now it looks totally different. <laughs> Um, this is the way to the, to the main road. They totally destroyed the, the ground. And before they um, start, they could evict us, they had to um, ground it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, they put a lot of sand on it and came with this huge like um, this machine what has this huge roll like a mm -hmm. for 
making the the pizza, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is that called? A steamroller, or something? Could be. Yeah. I don't know the English word. And, um, yeah, they had to make it like um, like flat. That yeah. The missions can go on. I think we should start to walk back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ah, okay. We are already um. in the <laughs> So that sound in the background is military planes or they have like learning lessons here or like um, yeah how to say it uh, training there are two big weapons factories it's ThyssenKrupp and Rheinmetall and they have their um, main factories here in the Rhineland and um, they get a lot of the energy from from the um, yeah, but I mean, um, there's this one factory which is directly connected to the power plants. It's directly situated next to the one of the power plants of RWE, which is run by Brown Coal. So it seems like this forest occupation and this energy company struggle ties together anti-militarist campaigns and anti-nuclear campaigns, environmental defense, anti-infrastructure, so many different social movements are coming together in this particular space. Also one of the reasons why um, I stuck tears, because um, for me uh, it's like, um, like having all the fights and struggles together in one, more or less. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think this struggle is so, so important here. There used to be barricades on this road? Yeah, but they um, always evict them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there come some new ones, and then they evict them again. Yeah. Cherry trees? Oh, no, here. So the cherry trees are just in bloom now, pretty recently, I guess. And those are... those pines? Yeah, I think it's pines. I'm not really sure. Fichte. Do either of you want to say anything about... How you got involved personally, or like what, uh, what in your own life led you to become involved in the occupation? I think how I came here exactly is not. There's n- not so much special about it. I just heard about it because of friends of mine who got stuck here and visited them and got stuck here as well <laughs> but <laughs> but um, before that I I guess I was basically searching for ways to have um, 
have an amount of contradiction in my life which I can somehow stand <laughs> and, um, which is not tearing me apart yeah. and so um, also yeah living in a somehow closer connection with nature was a quite important thing as well and yeah but also to to live a life where I don't have to choose each day between what's my personal stuff and what's political but to um, live in a framework which is political in itself and also uh, is always connected to my own needs. Before I came here I didn't really have anything to do with um, with energy struggles or climate change or brown coal or stuff like this and I also was not really that interested in it and I was more involved in animal rights and animal liberation struggles but I was fighting for that in the city so it's also not that easy mm. I came here because a friend of mine was living here and said hey you have to come here it's really really nice and I said okay for at least three days I will come here and um, at this time I was in a really desperate mood since a half year or something like this because I always try to to fight somehow or find a way how to um, how I can find and also um, have the feeling that it is successful somehow and then I came here and it was really like a revolution in myself <laughs> and um, I felt quite uh, fast that this is a place where I can do what what I I have the feeling is good and right somehow and that I can be useful here because it depends on every single person and on his or her character and yeah now I'm here since one and a half years and <laughs> also stuck here like some other people <laughs> Hi. <laughs> So we're just coming out of the forest now and back onto the meadow where the occupation camp exists. Can you tell us about some of the stuff that we're seeing? So um, on my right hand there is a kitchen and a fire space and also a um, space where we store the wood. And on my left hand there is a monkey's tent where... Um, many people who were living used to live on the forest occupation had, have their stuff in and next to it there is a material tent yeah in fact the meadow is uh, has a very long uh, and thin shape 
And as we're going further, we see um, the the workshop um, kind of hut, <laughs> something between a hut and a self-made tent. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we see our office, Bauwagen, um, the, um, like, what is Bauwagen in English? I don't know. Caravan. Yeah, something like yeah, a caravan, caravan. with office stuff. And we just passed the the fire pit, the main fire pit. Yeah. And now the um, around where people can sit. Yeah. Some tables. There's probably about 15 bicycles here. More mm. or less. And only three or four of them are working. <laughs> <laughs> That's embarrassing. Maybe there are some people who really like to repair bikes. So <laughs> yeah. They should right. come here. Coming back to the point how you can show solidarity, come here and fix bikes <laughs> all day long. <laughs> On the right hand, there's, um, there is a um, Technic caravan. Um, we got it donated by uh, some supporters. We have some two solar panels and some car batteries, which we always load on the solar panels, so we have yeah, enough uh, energy to load um, the to charge the mobile phones and the computer and stuff like this. And for other stuff where we need um, power for, we we charge um, car batteries. And so it's transportable, but all of the power we got here is are these two solar panels, and it works quite well. Yeah, Actually, okay. we never have any shortage problems. I just rarely. said once, but um, yeah, it's not often. Yeah. We also have a sound system, which works with the car batteries. Mm. Yeah. It's really nice. <laughs> so you can have techno parties late at night? Uh, not really techno parties, more cross parties. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think it nearly never happened that any techno played here. <laughs> oh, I think it happened. Yeah, today. You are gone. <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, left uh, right um, hand. There's uh, the prototype of somebody's mobile car uh, bike kitchen. It, it <laughs> A pancake. Huh? Somebody said it's uh, or somebody gave. It the name um, Pancake House and the... How um, did it get that name? Uh, because the person who is building it really likes to make pancakes and uh -huh. really often do it in different ways. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think he wants to give it the name ACAB. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> that it have the license plate ACAB. <laughs> All cookers are beautiful. Or something. <laughs> Anarchist cook and bicycle kitchen. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So it's a bike which looks like a hut for ten people. <laughs> like a fighting ship. <laughs> a pirate ship. It's really hard to imagine. I think if you don't see it on this. Yeah. <laughs> About how many people are living here on the meadow right now? It's always hard to say because every day there's somebody gone or two people came or stuff like this. Um, but right now there are always around um, between 10 and 20 people here, yeah, more or less. 
in the winter time it was um, like um, sometimes like five people up to ten but mostly more I think yeah. it was mostly around 10 15 people yeah that's true and at the moment it's right now today it's nearly 30 I think yeah. yeah. By the way, on the um, on the left hand, uh, we have a hut. That's um, actually the only really closed wooden building which we have here. And in front of it, there's a, a brand new clay oven, which has only been tested once and it didn't work. But oh. it has been improved <laughs> since, and hopefully, it will work tomorrow. <laughs> But I'm quite optimistic because um, I'm quite optimistic. <laughs> and I'm glad to see that uh, black flag with the circle A flying on the top of the house there. Yeah, we rescued it from the, um, from the eviction, evicted place. Mm. It was such a nice moment when the person just found the flag under all the, all the wood and stuff like this. Are most of the folks participating in the occupation anarchists? My feeling is that most of them are anarchists, but I am also quite glad that we don't um, so much categorize us as that. I mean, there are certainly some people who are pretty clear about it, but also others who don't um, don't um, say it like that, but relate a lot to anarchist um, ideals and yeah. Yeah. So your relationships with the supporters in the neighborhood are mostly pretty positive? Yeah. I think most of them don't really have a problem um, because they they feel that we are quite nice pure people. And there are some who who really like fell in love with us and really say it like more or less like this that um, they totally likes like us and so on and there are some who just um, are seem to be solidarity with us and I think people who who don't like the anarchy sign they won't come here anyway so <laughs> I think we don't really meet those people <laughs> oh nice um, they, they um, there are two people who put the tent up um, and they were here last weekend I think the first time they're from the close village and I'm really uh, glad about that they um, that they put up a tent here and mm-hmm. it seems like they want to stay here for some days cool. <laughs> really nice yeah. it sounds like you have quite a bit of support from the local area and I guess from other parts of Germany too in terms of you know, donating things to the struggle and other kinds of support. Yeah, th- definitely there is support. Um, I mean, you you cannot really say uh, if if it's much or not because it always could be more. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, there is a lot of support and um, yeah, and, um, all these caravans like this one and this one and also one what you cannot see right now. Okay. They also are donated. I think they are just two private, so to say, caravans, like caravans we brought here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think if there wouldn't be this support and this solidarity, we couldn't stay here. 
So. Yeah, yeah we um, we have a small garden here. It uh, grows since the last year. And last year we already got um, or uh, harvested some some vegetables. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and um, right now we have every morning again uh, um, at nine o'clock a to-do meeting. <laughs> there never was really an agreement to have regular plenaries, plenaries, and so um, <clears throat> some people were desperate about that, and some people were quite happy about that. But I think with the nine o'clock to-do meeting, there are many people who were really happy about um, having a time where we can talk about what's uh, what have to be done. So. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, there are also some tents standing around here where people are living in, mm -hmm. or yeah, visitors who are coming for maybe just a week or so. Mm -hmm. are living in I don't know whether we need to introduce the uh, big trash hill <laughs> <laughs> we can leave it out. we can leave the big trash hill out <laughs> standing right uh, in front of the whole meadow anyway as a very prominent uh, place <laughs> Do you say that in English? A very prominent place. Yeah. <laughs> It's when I when we first drove up, I actually thought that it was a barricade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's used um, as a barricade. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We don't produce trash. We only build barricades. <laughs> <laughs> The last question I want to make sure to ask is what can folks who are listening to this do to show solidarity with the occupation here and with stopping the destruction of the Humbucker Forest? Yeah, I think there are um, a lot of ways, like um, um, sh making solidarity actions, like uh, demonstrations, also spontaneously, and making information events, for example, or um, just putting, a, drawing a banner and put it out where many people can see it, for example, or just printing some flyers or just writing an, an email like I heard about that and I really have I'm really solidarity with you or um, showing the movie in the local cinema uh, there's a new movie out about the Hamburg forest and it's uh, around 40 minutes long and shows Yeah, quite a little bit of how life is here and how life was in the last forest occupation and a little bit of the background. And it's possible to download quite soon from the homepage Hambacher Forest or Hamburg
Dot.de <laughs> Fly attack. Um, solidarity actions. Um, yeah, the the greatest of solidarity action would be to uh, come here and get involved. Um, create new places I think that's a very important thing to do to decentralize the whole struggle and um, squat another part of the forest making a new collective there uh, squat houses there's so many houses empty here because of the forestry settlement um, and all of the houses there's no research to be uh, done about who's the owner it's all owned by RWE which is empty and it will definitely be the right place <laughs> oh yeah and tell your friends about this place it's also I think a thing which is not to be underestimated Maybe one of the most important things you can do. RWE has destroyed quite a lot of the forest, though there is still the woods that we're looking at now. What do you think will happen with this struggle? Do you think any of the forest will be defended? What do you think will come of this occupation? I think it's really not possible to say or to answer. And everybody is different, optimistic or not optimistic. When the forest was complete, it was m around 6,000 hectares. And now it's less than 800 hectares. So, it, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the part from the forest, what still stands, is more like quite young forest of course the ground is quite old but um, from the ground structure you can say that the forest is more or less around 12,000 years old um, and it was one of the oldest and biggest um, connected forests in Europe and especially in Germany yeah it's you, you cannot really say if, 
if the forest will stay or if part of the forest will stay I think it will depend on what we do and on it will depend on the solidarity which people will show because solidarity I think is one of the biggest weapons we have because it keeps the resistance alive and the other big weapon we have I think is information to give the information to the people um, all around the world and that is happening a lot and I'm really happy about that um, I think there are some chances because um, or at least there uh, was a decision uh, directly after the eviction they, there came the news that RWE will not dig a part of another open cast mine what is also in this area so at least one village will stay and I think that is that was something for a lot of people um, which they didn't expect and um, what maybe gives give some of them hope and also some some strength or some energy to um, take part in the struggle. I think there are some chances to keep a rest of the forest and to make this whole insanity stop. But I also think that it really depends on a lot of different things. And I don't believe that occupations and direct actions on a scale which is in sight at the moment can stop the whole thing, not alone. But I do think that it's a very important part, but it would um, need a lot more. It would need a lot more of the people who are somehow involved in the struggle and a lot uh, and the people who are um, who are confronted by the consequences themselves yeah they they have to see what means they can establish um, in taking action and to connect these different actions where it's possible and where it's um, useful I think that's a very important part yeah so it really depends on um, how we get different tactics together where it's useful and um, accept and tolerate different tactics. I believe there is a slight chance, but I wouldn't count on it. And that's also because I don't think that this is the most important question for me to uh, be here. Um, because however it ends, and at some point it will end, at least in uh, 2100, um, if it goes the way RWE wants it, um, all this will be a huge lake, a huge artificial lake, uh, flooded by a branch of the Rhine, which is another insane project. Um, or if it ends a little bit more our way, it will probably be a smaller lake and a bit of forest left it, it's it's by no means 
a big victory that's not possible not in not with these measurements but however it ends i think it would be important what experience uh, people made and what the feelings are which are people left with afterwards if they if they collected a lot of anger which they can use for for a fight against the whole system uh, whether they understood a bit more and that didn't left them only frustrated and didn't leave them stagnant and also the human um, connections i mean the struggle is not mainly about making friends but it would be about nothing if this wouldn't be a part of it and so i definitely hope that there are um, strong connections being left at the end and people who trust themselves and have some hope because they share experiences of what is possible In the years since these interviews were conducted, RWE has continued to decimate the remaining forest, slowed, but not stopped, by the resistance. The occupiers have continued to use every tool they can to interrupt the destruction, disrupt the company's operations, and spread information about the struggle. Just days before this episode was released, a massive barricade that was home to several occupiers was evicted by a combined force of around 100 police and RWE security. The barricade had existed primarily to protect the treehouses in other squatted parts of the forest from evictions. We wrote back to some of the occupiers we spoke with last spring, asking what has happened since we visited. Here was the reply we received. A few weeks after the interviews, we reoccupied the forest in at least three different places and several trees at each. Meanwhile, the occupation spread a bit until there were at least seven fully grown tree houses plus a few platforms. Last winter, we tried to disturb and delay the cutting as much as possible, with several lockdown actions stopping the cutting machines and two tree occupations directly in front of the mine. In order to go on with the cutting, they had to evict these, which led to clashes with the private security companies hired by RWE. People on both sides were injured. Also, two comrades were arrested and held in custody for a whole month for violence against the security people. A huge flood of letters from all over the world kept them going until both were released. The evidence provided by the security and police was so poor that they couldn't hold them any longer. After another escalation, some of the security employees quit their job 
or express their solidarity with the struggle. They work under really poor conditions, and a lot of them without a legal contract. Tactically, the occupiers increasingly make use of living barricades. When the time comes, people lock themselves onto something inside or on top to delay police from coming into the forest. But those barricades face attacks by police and the security more often. Meanwhile, there is a court battle going on concerning the legal status of the camp on the meadow. The authorities want to evict it, arguing that we don't have permission to erect buildings. But the owner, who is an enemy of RWE himself, goes to court against it, arguing that this should be under protection of the Constitution as a long-term demonstration. Also, several small-scale blockades of the Brown Coal Railways and the Digger occurred, as well as acts of sabotage on the railways and on RWE machinery. We've also heard about monthly public walks led by occupiers around the forest, which continue to grow, with around 120 people taking part each time. Also, a book about the squatting has been written and is scheduled to be released in July. An English translation may be in the works, our sources tell us, but it will probably take a while. We also wanted to know about events coming up where interested supporters can plug in. And it sounds like it's going to be a very active summer at the occupation. Here are some of the upcoming actions they mentioned. This summer, from the 20th through the 26th of July, there will be a culturally focused camp on the meadow called Kukuk, with art stuff and music and so on. In addition to the action-focused skill-sharing camps that happen twice a year during the spring and the autumn on the meadow. Also, there's going to be another climate camp from August 7th through 17th at a neighboring coal mine, as well as a mass action of civil disobedience involving the blockade of a digger. This event, called Enda Galenda, August 14th through 16th, is prepared by a large alliance of an anti-coal network local initiatives and political groups, as well as leftist parties and environmental NGOs like Greenpeace, unfortunately. It has a non-escalative action consensus. Of course, not everyone agrees with that, and we are excited to see what else will happen around the state that the police and RWE can't predict. A few days later, on August 19th through 24th, an action orchestra called Lebenslaute will play a concert in front of a huge digger, forcing it to stop. The action is called Andante an der Kante, which means Andante at the Edge. Everyone who sings or plays an instrument is invited to join the rehearsals and be part of the action. And finally, we asked what kinds of support the occupation needs. Here's what they had to say. How can people support us? Personally, I think what's most helpful is to come here, alone or with small groups, to take actions or establish new squats in the nearby villages. Also, spread the word about all this. Make screenings of our film and other smaller videos. Donations for our anti-repression structure are also welcome, since there are always costs for court cases, etc. We'd also like to add that RWE has subsidiaries active right here in the USA, including a wood pellet production plant in southern Georgia, a 50% stake in the Texas-based company Accelerate Energy, and an energy trading company based in New York City. We encourage any listeners who live near those areas to strategize solidarity actions that could bring the struggle to defend the Hambacher Forest across the Atlantic. You can stay up to date on the latest developments at the Hambacher Forest occupation through its website, hambacherforest.blogsport.de. We've posted several links on our website, 
crimethink.com slash podcast with more information about the struggle, upcoming events, the music you heard, and more. If these interviews moved you, I want to urge you to see what's happening in the Rhineland coal country, not as some exotic, far-off culture of resistance remote from your daily reality. Of course, we encourage you to show whatever solidarity you can for the specific struggle in the Hambacher Forest. But even more importantly, take a look around you, wherever you are, and let that inspiration motivate your resistance to the destructive workings of capitalism in the place where you live. To change everything, start anywhere. We can never be sure where the next front of beautiful struggle against authority will open up. It just might be that the development threatening the woods you love, or the infrastructure project displacing you and your neighbors, could be a flashpoint to open up unimagined possibilities for life beyond the misery of capitalism and the repression of the state. Let struggles like the one profiled here exist not on a pedestal far beyond our ordinary lives, but as provocations to remind us that resistance is possible everywhere. Let the spirit of the Hambacher Forest bloom and proliferate, a spark to ignite defiant hearts across the world. Until next time, thanks for listening. Solidarity, I think, is one of the biggest weapons we have.